and I serve here as the director of women's ministries and um, Providence is a group of people formed around a single and compelling vision and that is to make the gospel unignorable in our city and to that end every week when we come in here on a Sunday morning we're going to open the Bible because we believe that scripture was given to us that we might know worship and obey Jesus this morning, we are going to have a standalone sermon um, in celebration of Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to be in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 15. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, we are just going to ask that you turn there with us as we read the text. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a copy um, under a seat in front of you. And if you don't own or have a copy of the scriptures at home, then we're just going to invite you to take that home with you as a gift from us. Um, we just believe that everyone should have access to the scripture. So um, feel free to take that copy if you don't have one at home. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. And once you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy Easter. I want to welcome you here. If it is your first time to Providence Community Church, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We're excited that you're here. And uh, hopefully somebody's already grabbed you and, and tried to share with you a little bit about who we are and what we're doing here at Providence. Uh, if you want to, we'd love for you to connect. If you don't have a home church, we would love for you to consider making Providence your home church. But this morning, we're going to be talking about Jesus. Now, here's the good news is that's not something we're doing uniquely this morning. I, you know, spoiler alert, I've been doing this every Sunday all year long, and then before that, I've been doing it before. So I'm excited, though, particularly this morning, because we get to focus in on the single most uh, historic and momentous and life-changing, eternity-changing event that has ever happened in the history of the world, and that's not Tiger coming back and winning the Masters last Sunday, although that was good. I saw on Twitter it's that that was the greatest comeback in history. No, Jesus is the greatest comeback in history. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. And so um, in this text, what we particularly find 
is that the story of the resurrection is recorded in Matthew. And then right immediately following that, there is recorded the, the party line explanation for what happened. So Jesus rises from the dead. Everything has been done in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. But the good news about God is he can do what seems impossible and we cannot restrain him. And so Jesus comes out of the grave and then the soldiers run to their leaders and say, listen, we did everything that we could. He still came back to life. What do we do? And they make up a lie. They say, tell everybody this story, and if Pilate gets angry at you, we'll quiet him down. Now, what I want to do this morning is, as succinctly as possible, I want to talk particularly about the resurrection of Jesus, because here's the thing. Uh, We don't believe that our faith is centered on ideas or theories. The Christian faith is not a way of life. The Christian faith is a story about something that did happen historically. It is a a historical fact that we believe changes our lives. And I want to talk about that historical fact, and then I want to talk about the various different lies that have been spread in order to derail or detract from the greatest moment in the history of the world and why they're complete garbage. And then what I want to do, and this is, I have to be honest with you, listen, I know we have a mixed audience. Some of you came and you're members of province, you're excited. Some of you, you came because you were invited, and that's awesome. I'm so glad that you're here. Some of you, you came because you were coerced, and I'm glad you're here too. We have breakfast tacos, and hopefully that'll be a win for you. Um, and then some of you, you're here because you were outright lied to, and I know that, okay? And so, but I'm glad that you're here too, but I need to be upfront with you. If you're a believer in the room, I want you to leave out of here being encouraged to keep going. If you're not a believer in the room, let me tell you what I want for you. I want you to come to know Jesus. I'm shameless about it. I want you to experience the resurrected Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and is alive today. And I'm not going to be uh, weird or smarmy about that. That's my hope for you. I want to convince you, and I know that I can't, but I want the Spirit to convince you that Jesus really is who he said he was. And that he's still alive. And that that reality changes everything about life. So here's what I want to do. Let's pray first. uh, Because as winsome as I can be, I can't do that, but the Lord can. And so if you'll give me a little bit of time, what I want to do is pray. And particularly, I also want to pray for another group of people. I don't know if you guys saw this on the news when you were on your way in, but in Sri Lanka earlier today, there were eight bombs that were exploded in churches and in hotels attacking Christians on Easter Sunday morning. And so what I would like to do is what the scripture tells us to do is to remember our brothers and sisters all across the world who are fighting a totally different fight that you and I fight. We fought tiredness. We fought depression. We fought all of the things that, you know, really are not that big of a deal in light of what they are fighting. And so here's what I want to do. I want to pray for them, and then I want to honor what they're battling over there by doing what the only thing that I think we can do, which is to proclaim Jesus and worship Jesus with all of our heart. Amen? So if you'll bow your heads with me, let me pray. Father, first of all, thank you so much that the truth of the Scriptures is eternally true. Jesus, thank you that you rose from the dead, that although you gave your life, that you had the power to take it up again, that death had no hold on you, sin could not hold you down because you were sinless. And the grave, hell, sin was all defeated over 2,000 years ago when you rose from the dead. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room that they'd be encouraged this morning that you're alive and that because you're alive, everything is different. And for those that are under the sound of my voice who have yet to really experience and know you, Jesus, would you stand forth from your word powerfully and do what only you can do, which is to make a case you really are the son of the living God. 
And secondarily, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, those who lost family members today, those who lost loved ones, those who lost friends, and yes, God, even those who lost children. Would you be a comfort to them? Thank you, God, that you're alive and they don't have to just have wishful thoughts. Thank you that we can call upon you and we don't have to just send good vibes their way, but God, we can ask that you would meet them and that that's a real prayer that can have a real answer and a real effect. And God, would you give them great boldness to proclaim the gospel? We pray for those who hatefully set bombs and we ask God, would you meet them like you met Saul and made him into Paul? Would you meet them? And by the power of your grace, rescue even the enemies of the cross. Because Jesus, that's what you did for me. And so we ask, would you be with us this morning as we boldly worship, proclaim, declare, and experience the resurrection together? We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in this text, the particular story that comes up is that Jesus' body was stolen in the middle of the night by the disciples. That's the lie that's perpetuated. But let's just go through and look at the biblical case for the resurrection. What does the Bible actually say about what happened to Jesus? Let's start here. The Old Testament prophesied many times that Jesus would be raised from the dead. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter number 53, and I just want to kind of go down, and it should be behind me. This is hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. The man Isaiah, from God the Holy Spirit, has this inclination, this vision of what is to come in the life of Jesus. Listen to what he says, and tell me this doesn't sound familiar. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, he being Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, he was stricken for the transgression of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Check this out. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes offering for guilt, this is the resurrection, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Hundreds of years before, Isaiah said, this is how it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, and he's not going to be beautiful. He's not going to look the part, and they're going to hate him, that we're not going to esteem him. Even the Jews, the ones that are supposed to be looking for him, are going to miss him. And then he's going to be beaten, and he's going to be scarred, and he's going to be marred beyond recognition. And then he will rise from the dead, and he'll see his offspring, despite the fact that he's never going to be married, because his offspring is going to be the children of God. As disciples are made, he's going to see the church born, and the risen king is going to rule over his church. And then one day he will return and he'll bring his church into his fold because what he purchased, he will receive forever and ever. Amen. Hundreds of years ago that was said. Now I just chose one. You know what's crazy? There's so many. In the Old Testament, they always pointed that Jesus would not only die, the Messiah would not only die, but that he would rise again. Not only that, but Jesus, when he comes to earth, he predicts his own death and resurrection. In Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 21, it should be put on the screen as well. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's 12 chapters before what, I just, what we just read this morning. Jesus was telling his disciples regularly, listen, this has to happen. I have to be beaten. I have to be killed. But don't worry, I'm going to rise on the third day. He regularly begins to tell his disciples this, so much so that Peter comes up to him and says, no, Lord, not you. We don't want this to happen. You know, Peter always thinks that he has a better plan, right, than God. And, and, and he has to be shoved aside because Jesus has his eyes set on the cross, and he has his eyes set on the resurrection, now, another important thing to note, because there's a number of different theories, right? One of the theories that you see that has been porpited for a long time has, has been called the swoon theory. Anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll inform you. It's a little nutty. Basically, it says that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that basically on the cross, he just passed out. They took the nails out, and the disciples kind of whisked him away, and that later on when people saw him alive, yes, they saw him alive, but he didn't really die on the cross, and that's why. He just kind of swooned. Now, I want to say that's complete garbage, but I also want to say that I have reasons to believe that it's complete garbage. And I pulled up a, a, a doctor, uh, and I did this on purpose. I didn't want to only use the scriptures. All of the scriptures have a lot to say about what happened to Jesus, that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was arrested in the middle of the night. He was beaten on the way to a number of different trials as he walked by foot and was not fed. He was beaten mercilessly. Then he was taken to Pilate. Then he was flogged according to the Roman customs with the cat of nine tails. Then he would, they pushed a crown of thorns on his head. Then they put the robe on him. Then they made him walk miles with the cross up to the road to Calvary. Then they put pierced his hands. Then they hung him. And then just for good measure, they shoved a spear under his rib cage, piercing his heart, and he did not swoon. That's the Bible. But in case you still think that's nutty, I want to read to you out of Forbes magazine a doctor who talked about what Roman crucifixion really looked like. Now, no historian worth their salt says that Jesus did not die because it's historical fact. Jesus did die on the cross, and everyone who even at all has any kind of credibility, says that that is true. Here's what Roman crucifixion looks like, according to a guy named Dr. John Dreary. <laughs> Important name, right? Dreary. says this, The type of interrogation torture debated in the news these days is nothing compared to the way the Romans went about it. Torture in Christ's time was meant to psychologically destroy someone before the Romans even started physically hurting the individual. It began with an imprisoned night of anticipation and dread of what was to come. They would first scourge an individual with a whip to open up flesh wounds and then continue opening the sores. The idea was to get them to bleed as much as possible so that later they would be lightheaded and dizzy and more likely to pass out. 
The kind of repeated deep scourging with jagged pieces of metal on the whips that tore through the flesh and muscle was meant to weaken the individual. The Romans felt that it was too gruesome to nail someone to the cross in the city, so they first tied the 70 to 100 pound cross beam to the tattered, shredded, bloody back of their victim and then made them carry it through the streets to the outskirts of town, in Christ's case, Golgotha. It was part of the jeering and humiliation process. The nailing to the cross was not through the hands, but between the two bones below the wrist so that the wrist bones could bear the entire weight of the body on the cross. Having a nail driven through there would feel like lightning going through the middle and ring fingers. It was brilliantly placed because it wouldn't hit any major blood vessels, but it would hit the median nerve, which would cause a seizure of those fingers and make the hands flex down in an excruciating contracture. They would not be able to Relax. The most horrific part is that when you naturally take a deep breath, you pull the muscles of your diaphragm down. In other words, you actively breathe in and you passively exhale. But when you're left hanging on a cross, your arms are outstretched so that you actively inhale very easily. But you have to work hard in order to get the air out of your lungs. You have to pull or push your body up in order to expel air. You have to work very hard to get air out of your lungs. Breathing actually kills you because you cannot get air out of your chest. But the Romans wanted to prolong as much torture as possible, so they gave Christ a mix of myrrh to drink off of a sponge to act as an analgesic to alleviate some of the pain. They wanted as much humiliation as possible. Naturally, Christ was dehydrated and thirsty, but staying awake and alive longer meant being out in the open sun with bugs crawling all over open sores and eating away flesh Close quote. That's just a doctor from Forbes magazine. Now, after experiencing that, there's a theory that then he just kind of swooned, passed out, and then all of a sudden, three days later, he's okay. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. That's crazy. That's crazier than believing that he came back to life. At 12 years old, I was in a car accident, and I was in critical condition. It wasn't nearly as bad as that, but can I tell you, three days later, I did not come back and begin having lunch on the side of the road or at the side of the lake with anybody. There's actually a story that says Jesus walked seven miles on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. No one does a 5K after crucifixion unless they came back to life again, right? The swoon theory is complete garbage, not just based on the biblical evidence, but based on any historian that is worth their salt. The Bible goes on to record that a man named Joseph of Arimathea was buried, or he buried Jesus in a tomb that he owned. In Matthew chapter number 27, verse 57, it records that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And it goes on to say that he gave his tomb to Jesus that he saw Jesus on the cross, he saw what happened to him, he believed in his heart and said, I want to bury this man in a tomb of my own. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because this would have been a legal transaction as Joseph comes to Pilate and begs for the body of Christ. Just like you and I, when a loved one dies, there has to be a signature when you go in order to receive the body or the, the funeral home, you have to sign off so that the body can be received in order to take care of the body. There are legal transactions and documents that have to be signed in order for the body to be given to different parties in order for there to be burial. And so the Romans, who took a specific interest in this death and this burial, would have been very passionate about making sure whoever they give this body to, they know who it is so they can hold someone accountable in case maybe someone tried to come in and do something nefarious to it, right? 
So Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a well-known man in the community, would have been recorded as taking the body of Christ and putting it in his tomb. Then they rolled a thousand-pound stone. It says at least one ton, maybe two-ton stone over the grave as Jesus was laid in there. Some say that he would have had maybe up to 100 pounds of linens and spices, and that's how they would take care of the body, and they would mummify him. So just in case you thought that the sword or the spear through his heart didn't kill him, he would have at least suffocated, right? And then Joseph comes and buries Jesus. Then, on top of that, Roman guards are called in. Both the chief elders and the chief priests, after seeing what happened on the cross, and in case you didn't know what happened on the cross, when Jesus was up on the cross, everything goes dark for six hours. you got to think that the chief priests and elders are thinking, oh man, what are we doing? We messed up. Jesus cries out on the cross, earthquake happens. The Bible actually records that there were some other people inside the city of Jerusalem that were Dead that came back to life. That's called revivification, not resurrection, because they didn't actually live forever like Jesus did. But they came back to life, and they're walking around in the city as Jesus cries out his last breath. In the temple, the holiest of holies, in the middle of it, the temple veil is torn in two. All of this stuff is going on, and the priests have to be thinking, what in the world is happening? So what do they do? They go to the Roman uh, governors, and they say, we have to guard the tomb. If we don't guard the tomb, this man said he's going to rise in three days. If we don't guard the tomb and even a shred of evidence proves that he's not in there, it's going to cause an insurrection. And so at this point, the chief priests, the Jewish people, and the Romans get in cahoots together and they send Roman guards, a battalion, to guard the tomb. The Roman seal is put on Jesus' stone as if to say, if anyone moves this, you're going to get worse than what he got. And the Bible records that early Sunday morning, An angel shows up, earthquake, rolls the stone away and says the angel just kind of sits down on the stone. (laughs) And that the soldier says they, they fall down like dead men on the ground, so scared. And they just run. They scurry off. And Jesus walks out of the tomb. Now the Roman procurator Pilate would have been the one to oversee this process. This is a huge deal. And there's another theory that you kind of went around, and you can even read this, I'm not making this up, that said that, you know, the women... Ladies, this is going to you know, really perk you up this morning. You know, the women, the women folk, they, they didn't know where they were going. They got lost. Because Mary Magdalene and Mary, they, they find the tomb first, right? So they just didn't go to the right tomb, you know. And so they probably went to another tomb, and it was empty. And so they just started saying, well, Jesus is alive, and we can't really trust the women folk. That's what the, the theory said. Now, the problem with that is not only would the women have known, because the Bible records that Mary and the mother of Jesus watched as Joseph put him in the tomb. It says they sat opposite the tomb as he went in. But even if that weren't true, everyone would have known where Jesus was buried because the Romans had made it a huge deal. On his cross, it had said, King of the Jews, and then the guy starts crying out to God, and earthquakes happen. There's a darkness over the land. Weird things started to happen. Everybody knows where Jesus was buried. At least in that day, they did. And so the idea that they would just kind of wander to the wrong tomb is absolute garbage. But let's even go further. The women finding Jesus' tomb empty is so important to the historical narrative. And it's the very chauvinism that would have made them question the women that makes us certain that Jesus really did rise. Because if the women were the only ones to say that Jesus rose from the dead, you can be sure that the chauvinist leaders of the time would have checked up on that news. They would have gone to the tomb. They would have went and made sure because they don't really want to believe the ladies. And so they did go back to the tomb. They did see that it was empty and they had to create another narrative that Jesus' body was stolen or that they went to the wrong tomb. All of those things are bunk. 
And then beyond that, what you find is, and the Bible actually says that Jesus starts showing up alive to people. So it's not like Jesus rose. And listen, you probably have heard this. Well, Jesus rose spiritually. He didn't, rose, he didn't rise physically. I need you to look right at me. That's a total lie too. Jesus didn't just rise spiritually. Well, he lives, he lives on in our hearts. No, friends, your grandpappy lives on in your heart. Jesus lives on forever and ever. And he rose physically. He actually shows up on a beachside cooking fish, has breakfast. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is alive unless I put my hands in his wrist and my hands in his sides. Jesus knocks on the door. Could you imagine being Thomas? Oh, man. You open the door, Jesus says, Thomas, come on, bub. Here's my wrist. Here's my side. What does Thomas do? He doesn't fall down on his face and say, oh, holy teacher and prophet, rabbi, I love you. He falls down on his knees and says, my Lord and my God, the one who has risen from the dead. Jesus rose bodily, and he doesn't just show himself to his disciples. He doesn't just show himself to a couple of fringe people that are on their way to Emmaus. The Bible records he showed himself to 500 people at one time. And Paul actually uses this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7, to say, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Some of them are still alive. Now, in our day, 2,000 years later, people say, oh, it's all, that's crazy. That's not, that's, do you know that that would have been a lock, shut, shut the door case in our day? If you go to trial and you have 500 eyewitnesses that all go, yeah, 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 we saw him. That means that for sure this is true. It is valid. Now, there's another theory that says, oh, well, all those people that saw Jesus, they just hallucinated. They all hallucinated Jesus. They really wanted to see him, so they kind of conjured up, you know, this hallucination that they saw the risen Christ. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but before I was, before I was a Christian, I have had moments where I've utilized substances that maybe made me feel or see things. I'm just going to be honest. This is before Christ, okay? And when I saw, you know, a Smurf riding a unicorn on a rainbow or whatever it is that I would see, here's what I can promise you is if I turn to my friends, do you see this? It's a Smurf on a unicorn riding a rainbow into another city. They never said, dude, I see the same thing. <laughs> didn't matter if we used the same thing. They didn't see the same thing. They're seeing something entirely different. How many, how many times have you fallen asleep, told your wife, I dreamed that I was Batman, and she goes, oh, my God, me too. <laughs> that didn't happen, did it? If I can't get one other person to hallucinate the same as me, how do you get 500 people at one time to hallucinate the exact same thing, say the exact same thing, record that Jesus said the exact same things? You can't. And the disciples knew this. And so they told people, you should just go ask the eyewitnesses about Christ. Well, turns out somebody does. And he's not a Christian, but he's actually hired by the Roman government as a historian to go and to investigate. His name's Josephus. Now listen to what Josephus says, a historian, after he goes and investigates. This is what is found in his writings. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. <laughs> For he wrought surprising feats, he did miracles. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared, close quote. That's Josephus, a historian that went and investigated and talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses and says, listen, man, they saw him alive again. They saw this guy alive again, and here's the craziest part, is that this little religious cult sect that has been birthed is not just 12 people now, it's absolutely exploding. More and more people are giving their life to this guy named Jesus. Now, there's even more circumstantial evidence, and I can go on and on. James, Jude, and Mary, who at one point said, Jesus, you're crazy. You need to stop telling people you're God. After the resurrection, they worship Jesus as God. Now, I don't know about you. You can convince a lot of people a lot of things. You cannot convince your mom and your brothers that you're God. 
the one that changed your diaper and the ones that played hide and go seek with you, the ones that beat you up, okay, they don't believe that you're God. But these did after the resurrection. Even the enemies of Christ began to believe that he was God. Paul the apostle who hated the followers of the way meets the resurrected Jesus on the way to Damascus and he turns into a follower of Christ. And lastly, and maybe the most convincing circumstantial evidence is there are four major world religions. You have Judaism, we have Buddhism, we have Islam, we have Christianity. And all four of these major world religions are founded by a man. And if you were to go today and say, I want to go, Father Abraham, the founder of Judaism, I want to go to his grave, they'll take you to Hebron, they will lead you there, and you can worship, you can even take a pilgrimage to show homage to Abraham in his tomb, and his bones are there, they know where he's enshrined. If you say, I want to go to the prophet Muhammad, they'll take you to Medina, they'll take you to his tomb, it's enshrined there, and you can make a pilgrimage, many do. If you say, I want to go to the Buddha's grave, They'll take you to India. They will take you to where his tomb is. They'll take you to the grave. It's enshrined there. You can worship. If you show up to Jerusalem today and say, where is Jesus buried? They'll look at you and say, we wish we knew. Man, we'd make so much money if we knew where Jesus was buried. Here's the problem. Nobody knows. You know why nobody knows? Because he's not there. And because after the resurrection, none of his disciples cared to go back to the tomb that doesn't matter. Jesus left the tomb empty. No one broke in. Jesus broke out of the tomb. It's totally unnecessary to go to the empty tomb of the risen Savior. And no one knows where that tomb is because Christ is alive. And we are the only faith that has a a story even like this. Some people say, well, Christianity stole the idea of resurrection from other pagan religions. Do your historical work. Look back and you will see that every historian will say, no, it was stolen from Christianity. The resurrection of Christ is unique in every single way. And just in case you're not convinced yet, I wanted to read four other historians and what they say about the resurrection. These are not Christian scholars. These are simply historians. And after all of their work, this is what they say about the resurrection of Jesus. F.F. Bruce from Manchester University says, If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Can we read that again? If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. He says the history books that you read in fifth grade don't have the same sourcing as the New Testament does, but it's because it's not a secular writing that there's so much scrutiny around it. We know more about the resurrection of Jesus than we do about certain, like the Civil War. Clark Pinnock, McMaster University, says this, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. That's smart talk for people just don't want to believe it. Ian Blakelock, professor of classics at Auckland University, says this, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you, the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Close quote. And then lastly, the one that I loved the most, Professor Thomas Arnold, who for 14 years was a headmaster of rugby, author of the famous History of Rome, appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford University says he was well acquainted with the value of evidence in determining historical facts. He said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. 
And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquiry than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead, close quote. Friends, we believe not just a theory about life, not just a way of life, not just how we should live our lives better or how we should earn our way back into God's family. No, we believe in a historical fact that actually happened. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death and he rose again on the third day back to life physically, bodily, powerfully in the presence of many people. Paul said it like this. This has not been done in a corner. He did it publicly. And he did it publicly so that you and I can be sure of a few things. And so what I want to encourage you with is three things. What what does this mean for us if Jesus is alive? Well, number one, because Jesus is alive, we can know that the gospel is true. Because Jesus is alive, we can know that the gospel, the good news, is true. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Paul says this, starting in verse number 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love what Paul says here. He doesn't give us smarmy, warm, fuzzy feelings saying, listen, if it all ends up not being true, at least we lived a better life. I love that he doesn't say it. He says, no, we should be pitied more than any other person because if Jesus is not raised, you and I are going to die and we're going to be in the grave. So you might as well eat, drink, be merry because tomorrow it is over, fellas. I don't care how much vitamin water you drink. I don't care how much you watch your diet. I don't care how, how much CrossFit you do. You and I are headed for the grave and we'll stay there forever unless Jesus has been raised from the dead, in which case there is life after the grave because of Christ. And so if he has not been raised, we should be of all people most to be pitied. But Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, but he has been raised. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So friends, you and I can be sure that the gospel's true because Jesus is alive. Now I know we're at the 9 a.m. service, but if Jesus is alive, we can be alive this morning, amen? The gospel is true. What is the gospel, Court? What do you mean the gospel is true? The gospel is this, that you were created by God in his image for his glory. That you were created sinless and valued and loved by God. But that not only because of our first parent's sin, but because you and I willfully engage in selfish, habitually sinful and unrighteous things over and over and over again, our thoughts, our deeds, our desires, they are bent away from God. And the wages of our sin is death eternally, wrath eternally. And what we deserve is totally unfathomable to what we have done to God. But God, rich in mercy, sent Jesus. You see, the good news is that it doesn't stop there. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless and selfless life, full of righteousness, full of holiness. Check this out. Where our thoughts, deeds, and even desires were always bent away from God, Jesus' thoughts, deeds, and desires were always united with God the Father's. He was perfect in every way. 
And this last Friday, we celebrated the goodness of Jesus. You ever thought about how weird it is that Christians call uh, the Friday that Jesus was crucified on a cross Good Friday? Do you know why it's good, friends? Because you and I were supposed to be there, and he stepped in and says, I will take your place, in your place, for your sins. I'll take the worst of the worst, because I love you that much. That's why it's Good Friday. He was put on trial, and he received, a, he received a verdict that you and I deserved. He was treated like the criminal that you and I are. He received not an earthly wrath, not only an earthly wrath, but a heavenly cup of wrath that was deserved and reserved for sinners like you and me. He took that cup willingly. I love that when the, when the soldiers show up and they begin to try to take Jesus, Peter stands up. He tries to cut the servant of the high priest's ear off. Jesus says, stop. I do not, I, they're not going to take my life. I lay it down. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down willingly. Do you think for a moment that when Satan tempted Jesus and said, if you were to call all of your angels right now, you know that they would come? Of course they would come. But Jesus did not want to call all of his angels. He wanted to lay his life down for you and I. And now the gospel says that by faith, not by works, by faith, not by works. If you came in this morning, you said, the reason I don't like church is because I know that they're just going to feel guilty. I'm just going to feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing right. Let me tell you, friends, you're not doing enough. You're not doing right. But join the club. If you're like, man, I just, I hate it because I always feel like, you know, there's just so many things that I need to be doing that I'm not doing. That's true. Me too. There is not none of us that are righteous. Not one. And Jesus steps in and doesn't say, here's 17 things that you need to start doing and cleaning up, and then maybe we'll have a conference and an interview, and I'll see if you're clean enough in order to get into heaven. Jesus says, I will stand in your place. You will have my righteousness. And what do I need to do to have eternal life? Believe in the one in whom God has sent. That's it. It's a one-step program. It's so much better than eight-minute abs. One-step program. Believing in the one whom God has sent. Jesus, the Son of God. We place our faith in Jesus. And it's that faith alone that saves us. Christ alone can save us. And not only can we be assured that our sins are wiped clean, but we can be assured that the righteous and perfect life of Jesus has been accredited to us by faith. That when we believe, God not only sees us as a blank slate, he sees us as a righteous son and daughter in his kingdom. How can I be sure of this, Court? How can I be so sure that if I just believe that I'll be saved? You can be sure because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus told you he'd rise from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he said, you need to believe everything that I said was true. When I come back from, life, from death to life, you'll know I am who I said I am because no one else has done that. All of your greatest heroes, you know what? They're going to die. And you know what? They don't get around to. Jesus is the greatest comeback there ever has been. Because he's the only one to do it. Here's the good news, though. Paul says that he's just the first fruits. You and I get to experience this if we're in him. <laughs> Then one day you and I get this, which is point number two. Because Jesus is alive, you and I can be sure that we have eternal life. If you're a Christian in here and you have walked in and you have spent your life not sure if you're saved, I hope and pray that today you leave out of here never, ever, 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 ever doubting your salvation again. And here's why. Not because I think that you're good enough. Not because I think your church attendance is good enough. Your tithe record's good enough. You're serving with the kids. God bless you. is good enough. Because Jesus is good enough. And because your eternity is secure totally and utterly and completely on the basis of someone else who's perfect. And the good news is it's not just that you have to cling to that anchor and hope that you don't fall off. It's that that anchor's clinging to you. And his grip is strong. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 26, Paul goes on to say this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. He's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Listen to this, friends. This is a warm blanket to the soul. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Many times in euphemism we tell one another, well, you know, you know death is just another path. No, friends, death is an enemy. Death is evil. Death is awful. It's the reason we repulse from it. Death is not what was originally intended. It's not just, oh, you know, it's just passing on to the next thing. No. Death is evil and needs to be destroyed. And the good news is that Christ has come to destroy it. And the last enemy that will be thrown into the lake of fire is death itself. It will be gone forever. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, why can we celebrate at the hospital bed of a loved one that's gone? Because we know death will be destroyed. Not because we embrace death like two going arm in arm. No, death is an enemy and Jesus has defeated him. And we can be sure. The Bible records that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One on his right and one on his left. And after he was crucified, he was buried by a rich man, wealthy man. And after he was resurrected, he was mourned and he was found to be alive first by marginalized group of ladies. And then after that, he appeared to blue-collar disciples like fishermen, to white-collar disciples like tax collectors. And I think the reason that Jesus did this is so that moments like this, this morning, we can know that no matter if you are sinful to the point of feeling criminal, no matter if you are wealthy or you are poor, no matter if you are marginalized or you are preferred, no matter if you are blue-collar, white-collar, no-collar, who cares? You can be sure that you have eternal life that is offered to you in Jesus Christ if you will believe. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ because Jesus is alive and he has chosen. The only one who can condemn you rightly has chosen instead to forgive you. Point number three in my last point, because Jesus is alive, we can have purpose even in this life. I know that many of us, we woke up this morning, and although it's Easter Sunday morning, and it is pretty outside, sometimes it's not pretty in our life. And so we want to kind of get dressed. We want to look better. You know, most of you look beautiful. We're joking with the Connect team. We're like, I hope that if you're a guest, you come back next week, you're not like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> the good news is I, it doesn't matter how much I dress up. It doesn't change much, all right? But, but nonetheless, um, most of us, if we're honest, uh, sometimes it's hard to get excited about life when you're in certain seasons. Holy Week yearly reminds us that in the absolute bleakest of circumstances and suffering, God brings meaning, purpose, joy, hope, and eternal glory. Holy Week is this moment where we say, how could something like that happen to someone like that? At Good Friday, we think, who would do that to Jesus? And then the Bible reminds us people like you and me. And yet, on Sunday morning early, we see that God takes the worst possible moment, the darkest hour in human history, and he turns it on its head and brings meaning and life and hope and purpose. And that gives us hope that even in this broken, sin-filled, messed up, wrecked up, politically charged, crazy world that you and I live in, 
that we have a God that can take death and bring resurrection. He can bring life in the midst of things that are death. He can bring beauty out of ashes. And so, because of that, the death that you and I face tomorrow, we face it because we know Jesus is alive. How about the tiny deaths that aren't physical, but they're emotional, they're psychological, they're spiritual, that we have to face every single day? We face them with boldness because Jesus is alive. Hardship and suffering has meaning in Christ now. Joys and laughter have meaning in Christ now. Or let me put it like this. If Jesus can restore the broken and bloodied body of his own, can he not also restore this broken and bloodied world we live in? The Bible says he will. How about the broken nation we live in? How about the broken town we live in? The broken family you're a part of? The broken marriage you have or you fear to have? Or maybe just the broken heart you're carrying into this place this morning? Friends, I tell you, good news is that he can. Our Savior is loving. He is gentle. He knows what it feels like to be beaten and roughed up by a messed up world. And he holds out his hands to you today, not in anger. He holds out his hands to you. But now, as a resurrected king, he's no longer powerless. He's no longer hurt, but he is strong. He is victorious. He is conquering. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he is a loving and gentle king, but a powerful roaring lion. He can bring life out of death. And that's my prayer for you. I want to close with this quote from a pastor named Mark Driscoll. He says this, No one can remain neutral regarding Jesus' resurrection. The claim is too staggering, the event too earth-shaking, the implications too significant, and the matter too serious. We must either receive it or reject it as truth for us. To remain indifferent or undecided is to reject it. And so this morning, I just want to lay before you once again, I want to lay before you the resurrected Jesus. Is he not worthy of your faith? Is he not worthy of your worship? I believe he is. In Matthew chapter number 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And many of them chime in. Some say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're Elijah, come back. Some say that you're a great teacher. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? That's the most important question in human history this morning for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does the media say that Jesus is. Not who does your grandmammy say that Jesus is. Not who does your mom or dad or brother or sister or friend that invited you say that Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I pray you'd respond like Peter the one time he gets it right. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are who you say that you are. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then you and I, friends, can be who he says we are. Thanks be to God, if Jesus really is the king, then you and I can really be sons again. You and I can really be daughters again. You and I can really be whole again. You and I can really be forgiven again. You and I can really have life again because Jesus is alive. And I want to invite you this morning. We didn't just bring this up so that we could swim. At 1045, we're going to baptize people. We're not going to baptize them after this gathering because then it would be all wet. People would slip. It'd be a problem. We'd probably get sued. <laughs> but if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, we have clothes for you. You didn't know you were going to come to know Christ. We did because God told us, and now we want you to come, and we want you to be baptized. We want you to consider Christ, that he's not only worthy of, man, that was a good sermon. He's worthy of your whole life. And then when you give your whole life to Jesus, you actually save it. You'll stand to your feet. I want to pray for us. Jesus, you're alive. We believe that you're alive. It's not just a story, it's a historical fact. 
We thank you, Jesus, that we get to this morning sing at the top of our lungs. We mourn our brothers and sisters across the world who lost their lives, but we don't mourn for them long because they have now seen what we long to see. The things that I just said have become a reality, not just a sermon for them. To see you face to face in glory and to be received into your loving arms forever. Not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of your goodness and your grace and your mercy, Jesus. And so now my heart longs that those under the sound of my voice would be encouraged, but also would fling themselves at your feet, Jesus. Because as Thomas said, you are our Lord, you are our God, our resurrected King. May we sing at the top of our lungs, worship with all that we have, experience the life of Resurrection Sunday so that tomorrow we can face a world that's death. But it's a world that you're going to restore. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.